This morning we will continue our study through the book of Jonah, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. This morning we're coming to a text that is rather interesting, and really the study of Jonah, as we've titled it, the, the glory of God in salvation and judgment. This morning what I want to do is examine the fine line in between the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the salvation of God and the mercy of God. Now we're going to see this as a theme really running throughout the entirety of the book of both Jonah and Nahum, as it is the major overarching theme of both of these, uh, these prophets. And as we come to this particular text, it's important for us to kind of get the right expression. And we want to understand where we're going. We want to understand how this is unfolding so that we can rightly understand who our God is and ultimately how even then he expresses his attributes toward us, oftentimes to bring us to a place of a deeper realization and understanding of who he is. And not only that, but a deeper understanding of who he is then leads us to a deeper life in him. And so the sermon in a sentence this morning is this, and it is an important sermon in a sentence. It says, God often expresses his mercy through judgment or discipline. God often expresses his mercy through judgment or discipline. That being said, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 2, and we'll make our way through verse 6. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 2, says this, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to rest and to rejoice under your mercy. I come for the intention of rejoicing under the glory of your mercy. For Lord, apart from your mercy, I would not know you. And Lord, even through the times in my life where I have seen your judgment, your discipline, your sweet fatherly hand that would strike for the sake of drawing me back to yourself, I would be lost altogether. And so Father, I ask you, would you help me for the sake of clarity, for the sake of faithfulness, but above all, for the sake of worship, that we might see you and worship you all the more rightly. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. You may be seated. This morning we have to pick up where we left off. The previous text introduces this concept of Jonah, this prophet, beginning to be called out. God looks at him and says, Arise, go to Nineveh. The whole premise that God has in his calling out to Jonah is to send to, 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 send to Nineveh a prophet, and that that prophet would be one that would call out against it. So the whole concept is Jonah is going to Nineveh for the purpose of calling out against it the judgment of God. His intended end is to proclaim to Nineveh, God is going to smite you. He's going to wipe you off the face of the planet. This is the intended purpose of God as he calls Jonah to arise and to go to Nineveh. His intention is to go to and proclaim judgment. 
Now, we said in the previous uh, lessons, the previous sermons we walked through this, is that this in and of itself is an act of mercy to Nineveh. There is no need for God to send a prophet to a, a country, a people that is not his in the sight of Israel anyway, and to send a messenger to them for the sake of proclamation of judgment. As a matter of fact, Jonah is rather unique in the sense that God sends a prophet specifically to Nineveh. And as Jonah goes, it is even perceived by Jonah an act of mercy to the Ninevites. That Jonah is called to go and to go into this pagan, wicked people and proclaim judgment. Jonah is genuinely considering and asking the question, Why, Lord, would you send me to go proclaim judgment? Just judge them. Wipe them off the planet. Upon whom has their unceasing evil not come? As we'll see later on in the book of Nahum. And so what is it that Jonah begins to do? Jonah flees. And I think we look at this and we think, oh, well, I would never do such a thing. I mean, just notice what it says. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, before we move anywhere past this, I think we need to grasp and understand that there is a genuine reality to a desire to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, perhaps it is that you're thinking, well, I do not do that. I would never flee from the presence of the Lord. I delight in his presence. I delight in his joy. I delight in the fellowship that I have with him. But what's most interesting is friends, I can recount moments in my life. Friends, I can recount moments in the last couple of weeks of my life where there's other things that I desire, that there are other things that I think are better, really, that I just think my way is better. I feel like uh, an Israelite in the period of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I think I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord. I don't want to be obedient to the command that he's given me because sometimes his commands, man, they're heavy. They're weighty. So let's not pretend that we never flee from obedience that is difficult. That we never flee from sin or flee from the repentance of sin because we just simply have a love for it. And it's painful to use that language in regard to the Christian, but man, I am convinced that the Christian genuinely does, even though we have been rescued from the consequence of sin and we are being rescued from the power of sin, and even then we look forward to being rescued from its presence forevermore, that even though those are true in realities, that if I still have some affection for sin in me, and here what we see ultimately Jonah is doing is not so much running from the presence of the Lord because he doesn't think, because he doesn't want to see mercy given to the Ninevites. It's because he believes that his way is better. Certainly he doesn't want God to express mercy. But Jonah genuinely believes that he is more right to flee, that it is better for him to go and die in the sea than to see Ninevites saved. So let us not be so arrogant to assume nor to think so highly of ourselves that we presume that we would never flee from the presence of the Lord. And so what then is his response? Because as he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it is interesting to me that even in his fleeing, I would think that the God who is sovereign over all things, who has appointed everything that occurs in space and in time, in this particular moment would have made certain that there would be no boat at the docks in Joppa. 
I mean, notice the language here. It says he went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down in it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let's just consider this for a moment. Why would God providentially have a boat prepared to go to Tarshish? I mean, not only that, let's just consider this whole, this whole, uh, this whole narrative. God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah immediately flees from the presence of the Lord, which means he leaves his home. He makes his way to Joppa. And in Joppa, there happens to be a boat that is going the complete opposite direction than where God has called Jonah to go. But not only that, God in his providence has made certain that Jonah has the fare necessary to get on the boat. If I'm looking at this story and I'm considering, okay, I've called a prophet, I've called that prophet to go somewhere, oh, and he's fleeing. I would make certain that the only boat that was present is a boat that is getting you as closely, as close to the Ninevite shore as possible. I want you to go. And I'm going to make sure that the only way for you to do anything will point you in the direction of Nineveh. And yet, God in His providence has a boat prepared to go the opposite direction, fare that is necessary to board the ship in Jonah's pocket. And you have to ask the question, what is Jonah thinking during this moment? I mean, consider for just, for just a moment, you walk up to this shore as you were aiming to flee from the presence of God. And as you aim to flee from the presence of God, you see that there is a perfect provision for this. You can literally get on a boat that is going the opposite direction. Is that not somewhat staggering to you? And you have to wonder what was going through his mind at this point. Perhaps it is. For just a moment, he thought that God had blessed his disobedience to such a degree that he can get on this boat and go the opposite direction. But friends, let me make something abundantly clear. God never, and hear me when I say this, this is not a statement of him redeeming what is, what, is, what is evil and redeeming it for good. But understand this, God does not bless disobedience. It is not this moment where you say, oh, well, yes, I will be much more happier should I leave my wife. Or I'll be much more glad if I just took a little bit here and there that he would bless our sin to such a degree that that, that means that, oh, yes, then that means it was good. That is not at all what is occurring here. Instead, we see in this God's means of redemption, God's means of exercising mercy through, through judgment. And so the first thought would be, oh, look, God is blessing this, uh, this, 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 this option of me fleeing from him. And we know that is not the case. But then perhaps there is a secondary thought in Jonah's mind. And this is the one that I think is the utmost fearful there's a term that we use in regard to a section of Scripture in Romans chapter 1. And the term is judicial abandonment. Perhaps it is that as Jonah approached the dock at Joppa, and he knows that there was a boat to Tarshish, and he even knew as he reached in his pocket and felt the, the coins jingling, that he had the uh, a correct amount of fare to enter onto this boat and to flee from the presence of the Lord. Perhaps he thought for just a moment, God has abandoned me in my sin. He has given me over to it. In Romans chapter 1, there's three phrases. And each of these three phrases are so incredibly sobering. God gave them up to a debased mind. He gave them up to a darkened heart. 
He gave them up to the lust of their passions. Perhaps it is that in this moment, Jonah begins to consider, perhaps it is that God has given me up. He has judicially abandoned me. He sees me desiring my sin. He sees me desiring to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he has said, here, have what you wish. I will confess to you that I can think of no more horrendous place to be. Now, that being said, it is not that God is blessing Jonah's disobedience in the sense that he is paving the way for that. Because friends, can I just be honest with you? If you desire to sin, the opportunity will always be there for you. There is never a lack of opportunity to sin and rebellion against God. Literally all we need is to be left alone. We need nothing else to sin and to rebel against God. And yet here you see that even amidst his rebellion, you see God doing something in his providence. But we have to ask the question, what is it that God is doing amidst his providence? Is he giving him over to judicial abandonment? Is he blessing his disobedience? Well, we know that at bare minimum, one of those is not the case. Judicial abandonment seems reasonable, but it is not the plan that God has here. Because the answer to the question, I think, is rather simple. God has a good plan for Jonah's descent into disobedience. God has a good plan for Jonah's descent into disobedience. He is not looking at evil and calling it good, nor should we. And nor should we go on sinning that grace may increase, but we must believe that what we intend for evil, God in his infinite benevolence intends for good. So it is with Jonah and so it is with us. Friends, as you look at this story, Jonah sees all of these things unfold, and you can imagine all of the emotions and thoughts that are whirling around in his mind, but we must always know that we serve the God of infinitely benevolent providence. He is always working together for good. There is not a single thing, not an iota, not a dot, that will ever not be redeemed. God will redeem it. And as you look at this story and you think, Jonah, what a fool. How dare you flee from the presence of the Lord? God in his infinite grace and supremacy is saying, I will intend this. I have intended this for good. Now that leads us to the next thing here. Because I mean, as you read this story, friends, I'll just say to you, if anybody has merited judgment in this story, I really want you to hear this. If anyone has merited the judgment and the wrath of God in the story of Jonah, I'm not even so sure it's the Ninevites. The Ninevites are guilty before God, most certainly. The mariners, as we'll see, are guilty before God for their idolatry. But Jonah is one who is sat under the glorious weight of God in the blessed sense of it and now is desiring to flee from it. And so we see rightly that Jonah has merited all of this judgment upon himself. And the story continues. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, we see this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The first thing that I want us to understand here, and I think rightly so, is that there is in this moment, on everyone on this boat, great fear and trembling. And I love the language here because it personifies the boat. And the whole idea is the boat is so scared that it is going to break up, that it's going to be dashed into pieces. Because ultimately what is occurring, the Lord's fury has come upon the vessel of Jonah's rebellion. Everyone on the boat is experiencing this wrath and this fury, this tempest that has been hurled on them by the God of the sea and and the land and everyone trembles the boat itself is scared 
But then we have to ask the question as we consider this and as you look and you see this great wrath coming upon them and you think, oh yes, it's judicial abandonment. Perhaps that is the correct answer. God is exercising wrath. He's given Jonah over and now he's going to take him out. But even then, that's not what we see occur. Then we need to ask the question, I mean, what, what is the intention? What is the purpose of God in his assaulting of the boat, in his hurling this tempest at them? Well, it's an appropriate answer to say it's judgment to smash Jonah for his rebellion. And friends, Jonah deserves, hear me when I say this, the prophet here deserves to be smashed for his rebellion. He deserves to be smashed. In every sense of the word, he deserves to be judged. We know not only from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament as well. The one who sins will surely die. For the wages of sin is death. Jonah is the worst of them. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And he said, give me something else. Jonah deserves to be smashed. I would remind you that even amidst this moment, you and I are in the exact same boat. No pun intended. We deserve to be smashed. We deserve to have God's fury rest upon us. And yet there is one thing that reminds us over and over and over again that the judgment of God will not come upon us. And it is primarily that the judgment of God has already been executed in Christ. And we'll say that a little bit more in the coming week. But what is most important here is that God in His grace, listen to this, God in His grace and mercy is executing judgment. Now, we think of those two things as conflicting, as those cannot be parallel realities. In the same way that we as Christians would look at the Scriptures and say, God hates the sinner. It's not Lawson's language. That's the language of the psalmist. But then we have God loves his people. Brothers and sisters, we are sinners. How is it that these two things come together and come together so perfectly? They come together in his person. And so we must conclude then that it is mercy to strike Jonah with fear, to bring him back to his senses. God is merciful and long-suffering. And in this particular circumstance, we see God executing mercy through his fury. There was a moment in my life, for some reason, whenever I get this concept, when I think about God's judgment, God's mercy through his judgment, I think about a moment where I was about 10, 11 years old and I would always sit up in the balcony with a group of children at, uh, when I was younger at church. And then one day, all the children around me are making a great ruckus. They're causing all types of strife and I'm sitting there mortified because I can't get up and leave my friends. And so my stepfather walks up the stairs into the balcony and looks at me with these piercing eyes to which in our household we call them the big eyes. And as he looks at me, fear struck me in ways that I cannot explain. And I did what any intelligent child did at this point. I looked at him. I saw his fury. And my only response was to get up and to walk toward those eyes of fury. And as I got there, what I discovered was that he was not angry with me. He was exercising mercy on my behalf. He was looking at me and seeing that I was, in all essence, in all intents and purposes, guilty by company. He says, I'm pulling you out of that. So he looks at me, he pulls me out, and he says, you're sitting with us. You're not going to be accompaniment to that. And it was his mercy that brought him up there. 
It was his mercy that even gave those eyes such fury. In the exact same way, what we see here is God's mercy expressed through his judgment. He hurls, listen to the affection in this. He hurls a storm at a boat for the purpose of exercising mercy. See his benevolence. So we must say that God expressed his fury. And in God expressing his fury, we must call it mercy. And what's most interesting about this story is it wasn't just mercy for Jonah. My goodness, this whole story reeks of redemption. You can't read through the book of Jonah and not see the mariners converted or Ninevite repenting and seeing themselves saved by God's grace. But see the judgment at hand. And in the judgment at hand, you see his mercy displayed. And so what must we say? We must say that in God's providence, that he permitted the boat to be at the dock, but God would never allow his prophet or his people for that matter to truly flee from his presence. And if that means the good disciplining hand of God, that fatherly disciplining hand that we read about in the book of Hebrews must strike, then he will do it. And he will do it to make certain that all those who are his will be kept. And so we must say that when we feel as though we are under the judgment of God, we would do well to pause amidst the turmoil, amidst the tempest, and ask, what is God doing through times of turmoil, through the difficulty, through the hurled storm? We must say that even in the moments where we feel the judgment of God rest on us, we must say, it is my Father's mercy. It must be. For should it be judgment, we must then understand the judgment of God then wasn't completely absorbed in the person and work of Christ. But should we know and owe rightly according to the New Testament that God's judgment on us has truly been propitiated, it's been cast as far as the east is from the west, that it has been expiated by the finished work of Christ, then we must know that the hand of God, when it disciplines, is a hand of love and mercy, and though it may taste as fury, it is all grace. It is all mercy. It is the discipline of God and friends, brothers, and sisters. That discipline indicates that we are his. And he will not lose one that are his. Now, that leads us to progress a bit into the story because we really see this unfold. How is it that we interact with the judgment of God, the judgment of God and the concept of a little bit of wrath, some fury coming our way for the sake of mercy, for the sake of keeping us, perhaps it is even for the sake of waking us up from our stupor? Well, we see the story unfold. And I don't know if you've noticed this as of yet, but in verses 2 through Five, you really don't see any language that indicates that Jonah is present at all amidst this. As a matter of fact, we see from Jonah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we see Jonah is asleep at the bottom of the boat. So let's just read that. Jonah 1, 5 through 6. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, 
Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, the first things we want to see here, because I want to see kind of how these men interact with this judgment that's coming upon them. Now, what's interesting here is the mariners instantly have great fear, rightfully so. And each cried out to his God. The very first reaction of these people, the very first reaction to these, let's call them what they are, pagans, is to call out to their idols. Now, let's pause here for a moment and consider. These men are calling out to things that do not exist to save them from the living God. They are calling out on idols idols to rescue them from the living, sovereign, supreme, almighty God. They are hopeless altogether. Nothing so deaf, blind, and dumb will ever be able to stay the hand of the almighty one. And yet they proceed to call out on him. They proceed to call out on the name of all of these idols that will ultimately have no means of rescue and redemption. You even see them go a bit further to hurl the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Immediately their thoughts are, let's pray to our idols, to these things that do not exist to save us from the God who is hopeless altogether, that endeavor. And then they begin to do what I think all of us would do. We would begin to do everything we could to rescue ourselves from the wrath of the Almighty One. May I simply say, what a hopeless endeavor. They hurl all of these things into the sea. And as a matter of fact, later on in the book of Jonah, you will see even after the pronouncement that if they would simply cast Jonah into the sea, then they would live. They refuse to do that and they do what is right in their own eyes, which is keeping Jonah alive. And then they make this strong attempt to row to shore. It is impossible for man to rescue himself from the judgment of God. It is impossible. Yet, not only do we see them do this, brothers and sisters, it is hard for me not to see myself in the mariners. How often is it that I attempt, even after knowing the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, to provide something else, an additive, if you will, Perhaps it is a little bit of works. Perhaps it is a little extra religious vigor. But these things will never satiate God's judgment. Indeed, both of them add, as it were, fuel to his endless war against sin. I mean, notice what these men do. And friends, we must see the terror of man's inability to preserve themselves amidst the judgment of God. We must see in the midst of this horrendous situation that these mariners are looking around there's nothing that can save me from this. And say, you're right. There is no, there is no means of rescue for you. There is no means of remedy from this storm. You can row with all your might. You can call out on your deaf, blind, and dumb idols. There is no means of saving you. There is only one, and it is the one who hurls the storm upon you. He is able. He is able to save. And then they do what I think is most appropriate. All of their idols have proven to be completely useless, and so naturally they begin to seek out Jonah. So according to verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Why in the world? How is Jonah asleep? Literally, there is something akin to a hurricane coming upon their boat, and he is in the bottom of the boat, in the belly of the boat, asleep. You gotta ask the question, why is he asleep? Well, I think there is a clear answer to this, and I think we find it really in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, and it says this, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I am convinced that Jonah knew that he was under the judgment of God, and that God's judgment was coming upon him. Perhaps it is that he was ignorant of the intent of God in his judgment coming, in his mercy coming through judgment. But he was content to go into the belly of the boat and to die under the judgment of God. This is the level of hatred that he had for the Gentiles. The level of hatred that Jonah had for the Ninevites, I'm convinced even the mariners that he is on the boat with was that I would rather go into the belly of the boat, keep my lips as a prophet sealed, and die under the judgment of God. This is the most sorrowful language. He is asleep, and friends, it is clear that he is asleep in more ways than one. He lays his head down in the belly of the boat. He sleeps. But it seems as though, even amidst this, that there is an indication that he is not only physically asleep, but that he is spiritually asleep. He is totally ignorant of God's intended plan of mercy for the nations. He is totally ignorant of God's plan of redemption. As it were, it seems as though he is not only totally ignorant of God's plan of redemption for every tribe, tongue, and nation, but it seems as though he perhaps may be aware of it and hates the concept. I said when this series began that I am convinced that the two attributes of God that we hate most are his mercy and his judgment. Jonah hated the mercy of God given to people who he did not think deserved it. He thought, if I die, if the prophet's lips are sealed, then God's mercy will not be given to Nineveh. God's mercy will not be given to the mariners. But I think he had to understand that if they'd be not given to Nineveh or to the mariners, then I'm sure that they will not be given to me. And he thinks, I will die under the judgment of God. But what is intriguing about this is as we see this low point, I mean, seemingly this is the end of the first act or the, perhaps maybe the middle of the first act of the book of Jonah, that this seems to be the all-time low, that he is in the belly of the boat. And being in the belly of the boat, you see him asleep, asleep in the truest sense of the word. And God comes to him. God comes to him first expressing wrath and fury against the boat on which he dwells, aiming to break it up, to wake Jonah up. But then there is a sweet phrase that God uses to echo in Jonah's ear, his original call. 
Listen to what the mariner says. It is interesting language when you consider this. If you notice verse five and six again, we'll read the entirety. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper arise? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Just notice the word. He looks at him. He says, what do you mean, O sleeper? And then he refrains God's original word to Jonah. Arise. He tells him. He reminds him. God has sovereignty over the words that come out of the lips of pagans. And he says to him, arise, call out to your God. And God wakes him up. Now, what's interesting about this is later on in the Scriptures in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, really does use a very similar language. And I'm convinced that it's a very similar language because Paul was meditating upon the story of Jonah as he penned it. Jonah descends into disobedience, descends into disobedience in ways that, that, are, that are staggering, especially for a prophet of God. And as he descends into disobedience, as he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this descent of disobedience, you see him asleep, and certainly not only asleep physically, but I'm convinced sleeping spiritually. He is completely casting out the good oracles of God. He says, my lips will be still and I will flee from the presence of God. And what then should God do? I think we were right going back to the beginning. that It's perfectly reasonable for God to judicially abandon him, to cast him off by the wayside, or to simply say, away with you, you evildoer, I never knew you. It is perfectly right. And even if this judgment that's coming upon this boat is to take Jonah out and sink him to the bottom of the sea and for him to dwell there forever, God is just. But that's not what's occurring. Even as this mariner walks up and says, arise, God is doing a work. Now, not only is God doing a work, he is doing a work as he always does with his own word. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13 through 14, describing uh, or, or seeing how uh, the Christian is remedied from descending into disobedience, Ephesians 5, 13 through 14 says this, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Isn't it interesting that wave after wave after wave of God's judgment for the sake of bringing about his mercy hits Jonah. It is in the word arise. It is in the original call of God for his life. Arise, go to Nineveh. Arise, call out to your God. And you have to wonder if even the language that is presented here is offensive to Jonah. Perhaps it is that even as this pagan walks up to him and says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I wonder if in that moment he hears this mariner making a genuine comparison between the pagans, the idols that these pagans are calling out to and the true God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. And he thinks, no, no, it is not a perhaps my God is not like your God. And I see, even in this moment, Jonah still tasting the mercy of God amidst this. 
We'll see that more clearly in the next section. But God has pursued him and pursued him in a way that none of us genuinely want to be pursued. But God in his infinite grace has pursued each and every one of us. I know for certain through the sweet disciplining hand of a father. God does exercise mercy through judgment. He exercises mercy as every good father does. But there is an interesting correlation here that I do want to point out. Not only do we see that God has exercised judge, mercy through judgment, particularly for the person of Jonah, but it even goes beyond that. It's not only for Jonah, it's for the mariners that will be converted. It's for the Ninevites who will repent and be saved. But there is this other reality that we find here. Because there is this theme of the better prophet that runs throughout the entirety of the book of Jonah. There is an interesting and a parallel that we find in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. And it says this, And when he got into the boat, speaking of Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Then they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? There is no perhaps with Christ. To be honest, it's reasonable. It's reasonable for the sailors to approach the prophet who is fleeing from the presence of God and wonder, will the God hear us? Will the God who you serve, the one you are fleeing from, save us from this wrath? It's reasonable to say perhaps. It's reasonable to consider perhaps this is pure judgment. Just judgment. Just wrath. Just fury, no mercy, no grace, no love mixed in. But saints, we can never say perhaps. Why can we never say perhaps? Because we are not in the boat with Jonah. Jonah is not our prophet. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus needs no one to shine light on him to wake him. He is the light. We need not ever wonder if wrath comes for us, for Jesus has absorbed it all. And we must, in light of those things, know that should we run to Christ and wake him, then we will find all grace, all mercy there. There is no perhaps with him. The wrath of God is satisfied. The judgment of God is satiated. That way we know for certain, should God's hand of judgment, should we feel it and fear that he is exercising judgment, judicial abandonment to cast us off, we must say with great certainty, no, no, no. That is my Father's hand. It is sweet. Even when it wounds, I know that he will bind me up. The disciples ran to Christ and ran to Christ rightly. And Jesus responds to them and says, You of little faith instills all their fear. May we always do the same. 
May we run to Jesus, who is our better prophet, and know with certainty that any hand of trial, any tempest hurled upon us, must be called nothing more than mercy.